risen from the dead. You have risen from the dead, Jesus. And we are one with you again. We love you and we honor you. We thank you. We're asking today that the preaching of your word would be effective, that our lives would be transformed into your image, and that we'd be empowered to make a difference in this world for the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ. In your holy and precious, magnificent name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, band. Good morning, community of faith. It's a joy to be here today. We're in the second week of our series entitled Antioch, Church with a Mission. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's the church can change the world. I've uh, had that other phrase before. You can take either you want, church uh, with a mission or the church can change the world. But Antioch, the church can change the world. And uh, last week we looked at Antioch in Acts chapter 11 and how Antioch was formed to be a church. It was a church plant, and it was planted uh, out of the fact that some people left their comfort zone to go to a new place locationally and a new place relationally so that others could experience the comfort of God. It was, it was an amazing thing as we looked and we saw how people came to Jesus and how uh, Barnabas and Saul were sent to Antioch from Jerusalem, and, and the disciples were strengthened there. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's important that we remember that, that in order for a church to be planted, in order for something new to come about in God, it means someone has to leave their comfort zone for the sake of someone else receiving the comfort of God. Today we're going to look at the book of Acts, chapter 11 at the end, and chapter 13, and we're going to see how this church at Antioch that was planted became a base for a movement of God into the Roman world beyond it, and, uh, and really touched many, many places. And we're going to look as well off of that, we're going to see how does that relate to us here at Community of Faith, and how does that relate uh, to our day and to our age. So let's start today in Acts chapter 11 and verses 27 through 30. If you'd open with me to there, we'll read. It says here in Acts 11, remember the church has been planted at this time. People left Jerusalem and started a church because of persecution that had broken out. So that's the context in which we're reading here. It says in verse 27 of chapter 11 Acts, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up through the Spirit and predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. What do we observe through this scripture as we see um, that uh, the church, uh, as we look at the church in Antioch? What we see here is that the church in Antioch was connected to a network, a wider range of churches. It was a part of a group of churches. It did not stand on its own. It did not stand in isolation, but it was a viable part of relationship with other churches. We see here 
that it was connected, first of all, in a loving relationship with its mother church in Jerusalem. It had a loving relationship. There were some Jews and many non-Jews in this church in Antioch, yet a loving relationship developed out of the church in Jerusalem from which they'd been sent. We also see here that the disciples, in love, were providing for needs for the church throughout the area of Judea, the area of Judea, whatever you might call it, that they were providing for the needs there. And there was a loving relationship going on. The folks in Antioch were saying, we have received spiritual benefit from the church in Jerusalem. We have received spiritual benefit from the churches in Judea. Right? And when I say church, you may not want to think too much about something large, uh, but you might think about the church being the meeting of God in homes. We know that the church is not just a huge gathering of people, but it is two or three gathered together in the name of Jesus. So the disciples, we notice this, right, were at Antioch, were in relationship with a larger group of churches. You know, it's interesting, as I speak, we are a part of a larger community and a larger movement of churches throughout our nation and throughout the nations called Antioch Ministries International. And uh, I've been a part of this movement for about 25 years. I remember one of the first times I was in touch with one of the related churches in this movement. In 1992, how many of you were alive in 1992? Raise your hand there, huh? All right, not bad. Our college students aren't here, praise God. To No, I mean, just for that question. Uh, My first experience really was in the early 90s, in 1992 and in 1993. And uh, at that point, uh, we were going to Siberia to start new churches. And um, if if I could have your attention up here, the the windows will get open anytime soon. (laughs) Thank you, I'm sorry. Hard for me to concentrate. I love you all and thank you guys. You're not very inconspicuous, Greg, uh, with your (laughs) six-foot-six frame. Love you guys. Thanks. Uh, Start again. The church at Antioch was connected to a wider range of churches. And my first experience with our larger Antioch movement that we're a part of here at CFCF was in Siberia in 1992 and 93, 94, the early 1990s. And uh, I remember that uh, when we talk about the church being planted and that being people getting out of their comfort zone, man, oh man, oh man, oh man, were we out of our comfort zone in Siberia. Man, we had never heard of the cities we went to. The first city we went to was Ulan Uday. Say that after me. Ulan Uday. It was a city of 300,000, 350,000 people, and it was the capital of a region, an autonomous region in in Russia, in Siberia, called uh, Buryatia. And uh, we went there, and the interesting thing, imagine this, our first trip to Ulan Uday in 1992, we left Waco, Texas, we drove two hours up to Dallas, okay, on I-35, and then we got in a plane, and we flew to New York, and then we... We landed, then we flew, no overnight, we flew from New York, we flew to Finland, no overnight, we flew from Finland, we flew to Moscow, no overnight, we flew from Moscow, and we flew seven hours all the way out to Siberia, or eight, 
to Ulanude. And we got there. Guess when we got there? 6 a.m. And they said, don't go to sleep because it's going to throw you off the rest of the time. I mean, can you imagine? We were just... I remember the first thing I went, I went to a church service uh, or just a little gathering that they'd had of some of the initial believers. And I was just... I mean, it, I mean, it is jet lag upon jet lag. Don't tell me you've had jet lag until you've done that. No, you can tell me. But anyway, I remember us getting there. And while we were in Ulanu Day, we were working with the first team in this city to plant a church in Siberia. And this was really, out of Waco, the first church that we at Antioch attempted to plant. Which means <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but God knew what he was doing. We had a heart for Jesus and a heart to go for it in God. And Audrey Berry, who's here, was on that trip as well. I want to acknowledge her in that. Well, anyway, while we were in Ulanu Day, we began speaking in schools. God had just freshly opened up Russia for, for God, I mean, for himself at that time. We were invited into schools. We could share the testimony of what Jesus had done in our lives. We preached to every living, moving creature that we could find, including some animals probably. I don't know. Um, maybe not. We preached and we shared. We prayed for the sick. And I remember at that time, many, many people were getting healed of eye problems. There were just many people. God was pouring out his fresh measure of grace and faith because this message was coming for the first time in years upon years, over 70 years, to a people hungry and thirsty for it. And uh, we, we just shared constantly the news of Jesus. On the buses, we had these little pamphlets that told the story of Jesus. You'd hand it out to an entire bus, like let's just say this many people, and they'd all be sitting there. They'd actually read the whole thing. They would read all the way through from the front to the back about the life of Jesus. And I remember at the end of the summer... This was really awesome. We uh, had the opportunity to baptize the first 45 people in that church in 1992. We had had a lot of people receive Jesus, a lot of people do things, but there were 45 people who said, we want to walk with Jesus, and we want to walk together as a church here in Ulanu Day. And we were taking two buses. We were going along, two buses, all the way out to the lake. And we went out to the lake and baptized 45. 45 people. I mean, the book of Acts coming alive right there. This is what Paul was talking about when he was writing these churches. This was a whole people that were not a people that became a people of God, as Peter spoke of. Well, anyway, one testimony from that time is that when we got baptized, when, when we baptized this group, there was a guy named Sasha, and his name was actually Chris Wingstone. He had a band. He was, that was his cover name or whatever you want to call it, his pseudonym, Chris Wingstone. And uh, he actually didn't know Jesus, and we got out there. I don't know how he got out there. He was hanging out with us. The first time I saw him, he had a boombox. You, you don't remember a boombox, but uh, there were boomboxes back in the early 90s. He's walking around with. We got there, and, and Jeff and Dorothy Abshire, who were on the initial church plant team here, were on that team. And Jeff, he, uh, Chris, Sasha, knelt down and received Jesus in his heart, and he got baptized that day. It was a wonderful thing. God was doing great works. But I realized two weeks later, I'm talking to Sasha. And he's talking to me in English. And he's not just talking to me in English. He's talking to me in unbroken English. And he's talking to me in English that doesn't have much, if any, of an accent. Now, I'm... I'm I, I love Russian people, but there's an accent. Uh, Anna doesn't have much of one at all. But, you know, most of them, it's, uh, how are you doing, right? 
You understand? But this guy had no accent at all. I'm like, bro, were you just not talking to me early? He said, no, God gave me the gift of English. He was not speaking English two weeks earlier. God gave him the gift of English, and he was a worship leader in one of our churches in Dallas for a time period. And um, praise the holy name of God. When you seek to go out beyond the bounds of your comfort zone, God's going to do amazing things. That's pretty amazing to me, to learn English by the Spirit of God. And uh, I have this verified. I've talked to him face to face. It's true. So anyway, the next year, 1993, we went to the city of Irkutsk. I'm talking again about a network of churches. As Antioch was connected with a network of churches, this is us beginning to build a network of churches. In 1993, we went to the city of Irkutsk. Anybody play Risk or the new, the online version or whatever? Yes, Irkutsk. Well, Irkutsk, we were way out there in Irkutsk. That's one of the little autonomous regions in, um, in Risk. And uh, it's actually a city of 600,000 people. And it's, in the cap- it's the capital of Irkutia, which is several hundred miles across from the largest lake in, uh, in the world. 20% of the world's fresh water is in Lake Baikal. And Ulan-Ude is on one side and uh, Irkutsk is on the other. Well, we went to Irkutsk with some of our disciples from Ulan-Ude and we began preaching the gospel. But we noticed it was a different spiritual environment. Actually, the environment of Irkutsk was not quite Boston, but a little bit more close to a Boston-type mentality. And we said, man, I don't know what we're going to do, but this is not Ulan-Ude. This place is is a harder place. So we committed for over two hours a day. I'm not just talking... um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking two hours plus a day. Our team prayed. We called out to God every day. We said, there's no way this is going to, this mountain's going to move apart from prayer. So we prayed. You remember that Audrey? And we prayed and we were tired of praying and we were tired of each other. And we prayed and we prayed. We called out and then we'd send people out. And then sometimes we'd send half of our people out and half of our people would be back at home and we'd be praying. We'd be saying, God, open up the hearts and the minds of the people of Irkutsk to know the love of Jesus. Well, praise God, by the end of that summer, we baptized 27 of the first believers in that city and set them on their way uh, along with others to tutor and guide and love them from our team that we left uh, in the river. It was such a joy. Uh, That is how I first got in touch with the churches of our movement, just as Antioch was a part of its own movement of churches, uh, and we can see that scripturally. Let's look now at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. So Acts chapter 11, we see the establishment of Antioch, that it's connected to a larger group. Now let's look at Acts chapter 13 and take the story a little bit further. Are you with me, Tyson? All right, I thought you would be. Let's continue in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Have you ever seen us do that here at church? When we send our people out to the nations, we send a team to India. 
that just came back with healing and, and uh, other kind of stories. I have verification of a healing in Germany uh, with our team there. Uh, we, we lay hands, and that's what they had done. But here's an interesting thing. There's two main things I want us to pay attention to in this scripture and this passage to get a heart for us being and growing as a base. Hey, I, the reason, you're like, why? I'm not that excited about being a base for a movement. I just want to walk with Jesus. I just want to be free in Him. I want to honor Him, and I agree with you. I want you to be set free in your mind, your will, your emotions. I want you to overcome financially. I want you to overcome relationally. I want you to overcome in every way. But unless the church takes on the mission of God that He is charged, we will remain bound. Ultimately, we must take on His mission, and then He will clean us up and strengthen us and deliver us as we go in obedience to Him. I think that there's a lot of bondage And a lot of things that happen because we have not taken on the mission of Christ. And for that, I apologize to you as a pastor. I just want to say to you, I'm committed to stretching out in Him. And then in that stretch out to minister life to you. So the church in Antioch, we're going to see two reasons it became a base for sending. Or two things that caused it to be a base for sending. Through extravagant love for God as the centerpiece at Antioch extravagant love for God. Once again, we see in this passage that Antioch was a place of equipping, a place of encouragement, and a place of comfort. But I'm going to tell you, one of, if not the main key of Antioch being a place where people were sent from to change the world for Jesus was they had an extravagant love for God. Their love for God was not tepid. They were not in any way, shape, or form half-hearted in their devotion to Jesus. The people in Antioch, it says, as they were fasting and they were worshiping, God said. As they were fasting and as they were worshiping, fasting, the doing without of food, right? I mean, goodness gracious. I like to pray fast and then eat. But instead, these guys fasted and prayed. Did you get that? No? Pray fast and then eat? Okay, never mind. What we need to be doing is fasting and calling out to God. What is fasting? It's saying, God, I have to have more of you in my life. Status quo is not enough. We're not earning approval of God by fasting. The approval of God was met on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are people to say, God, as you have pursued me, now I'm pursuing you. I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. These people were worshiping God, and they were fasting. And you may say, it makes me a little uncomfortable when people get excited about God. I'd rather you be uncomfortable by people getting excited about God than nothing happening in this city. (laughs) And then things becoming status quo. Do you know that from heaven's viewpoint, it is strange when people are not excited about God. Because the angels and everyone in heaven around the throne of God are in awe at His presence. Even angels, just angels when they showed up, people felt... On their face. How many times do we see in the scripture people falling on their face, left and right? It was just an angel. What about the Lord Jesus Christ of all heaven and all earth? You see, there's an awe that God has. It looks strange to heaven when we're not excited about God. God wants us to be excited. It doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert. You're not going to have to be Jeff Bianchi. You can be who you are. But in that, there's a hunger. There's a thirst. We seek God in praise and worship. We seek God through Bible study. We seek God through prayer. We push into Him instead of pulling back because we're saying, God, if you're worth going 
Uh, if you went all the way for us, you're worth going all the way for. Jesus, you went all the way to the cross. You died. You rose again. We're all out for you. So there is an extravagant love for God as the centerpiece. And only extravagant love for God empowers the church to obey his mandate to go. I am fine and I want ever increasingly to be seeker sensitive in a sense of, of, of caring for the people around us and making sure that they understand as much as possible what's going on. But I tell you this, giving way to catering to every one of man's needs initially before catering to our God will not get us to accomplish his mission on earth. When we worship and love and care for him, guess what happens? More people get blessed. More people get encouraged. More people get set free. So, the first thing is through extravagant love for God is the centerpiece at Antioch. The second uh, way that it went to become a, a base for sending is through an unrelenting obedience to what God said. Jesus said, if you obey me, if you obey me, then you will know and experience the love of the Father. It's not if you just hear, if you just understand. As we've said time and time again, we're not so much about information, but we're about transformation. Whatever information is given, we want to see transformation. While in this environment of extravagant worship, God spoke to the disciples, and he said, he gave them these marching orders for the advancement of his kingdom. God said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. And guess what the disciples did? They obeyed. They obeyed. God said, set them apart for the work. Next thing we know, they're laying hands, fasting on them, uh, fasting and praying, and sending them off. Now, here's an interesting thing. Don't wait until something big to give your whole heart to God. Don't wait until a moment where God, uh, where we, you have a meeting, where everything always changes. No, these people were fasting and worshiping as they went. They were extravagant for God. And then God said, send them out. And they said, oh, yeah. We're used to that fasting and worshiping and laying hands thing. Go on out. They didn't have to work up some big emotion. They were already given to God. And God said, send them out. You know, the eyes of the Lord, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, are roaming across the face of this earth. God is looking across the face of this earth, and it says, in order to support those whose hearts are fully His. God is looking, and He's looking at this earth He's looking down from heaven upon us today. And he's saying, will their hearts be given in extravagant worship to me? Will they be an obedient people who will do whatever I say? And I just want to say this, as a weak man, as a sinful man, apart from God's grace, I'm in, God! I want to do whatever you want. I want to love you with all my heart, Jesus, all of my days. If people think I'm great, if people think I'm a, a nut. And I want to obey you, Jesus. Man, what I wouldn't do, and it's growing here, and I'm encouraged by it, for just a bunch of burning hearts for Jesus that'll do whatever he says, that burn for their Lord and Savior with a heart of zeal and are willing to do. So that's what became. This church that was planted, that was tender as a plant and was nurtured, became a base for a movement. You know, certain places open doors for other places, and um, they become refuges for many people. What was an outpost of the gospel in Antioch? At one point, it was an outpost. But then it became a base for a movement beyond it. And you know, there's a mountain climbing illustration, if you can bear with me on this illustration, that uh, anybody ever climbed Everest in here? I'm not doubting that there are. 
Without oxygen? I'm just kidding. I didn't see it. <clears throat> Everest, you talk about the K2, these huge mountains. You do not climb Everest. You do not climb K2. You do not climb the largest mountains on earth in one shot. <laughs> it's not like, you know, I'm going to Monadnock. Let's just uh, take it out. What happens is you climb up to a level, and, it, and, and in Nepal, I believe it is, uh, there is a camp called a base camp, and it's at 17,000 feet. But the people stay there. Once they get to this camp at 17,000 feet, they stay there for six weeks. Why? Because they can't go to 28,009 feet, I believe it is, until they've adjusted to 17,000 feet. They can't do it. And so what they do is they stay there. They live there, and they acclimate. And then... After they're there, then they move up and they take uh, a hike up to, to base camp two. And then they go to two. And then they might come back to base one. Then they go two, three. And then they go back to base one or base two. And they're acclimating all the way. And then there's the day that they can make the summit. And they can go all the way there and make it. Stand on top of the world and say, woo! And that is to me an example of church planting. Church planting, when you plant churches among a people, then it becomes its own place where you're able to reach even further places for Jesus from there. You see, uh, when we first moved to Boston, it was an outpost. It was an outpost, at least for us in Texas. I mean, what an outpost. We were, we, uh, I, you know, we were far, far away. And it was 1,800 miles from me and and uh, it seemed a long way. But now what's an outpost is becoming a base so that we can more effectively reach the places beyond it. Man, God, uh, Sean Richmond, our, uh, uh, a president of our movement and leader, uh, says that God spoke to him that he was giving people that could walk in the atmosphere, that were acclimated to the atmosphere of a place like Boston so they could go and take the world for Jesus. If we can get people acclimated to being hungry and thirsty and, and desiring of God in this location, in this place, they'll go anywhere for Jesus. Well, anyway, we see this principle in church planning. The first church I planted in Ulan Day, I'll be Ulan Day, I'll be try to be quick on this, is um, was is it's been a church for twenty two years now. And uh, when I went for their twenty year anniversary, I'm sorry, I didn't go for theirs. It, it was the Irkutsk church. But when I went a few years ago to Ulanu Day, they had already started a base from reaching the Buryat people of, of um, their region. These are, the, these are the people that are Mongolian uh, type or more Mongolian people that live in the uh, Russian Federation. And they're reaching out to Eskimos and those beyond. They had already done it. And, and the day I was there, they came up to the front. They brought the orphans up front that they had adopted an orphanage. This is a church, just seed that we had planted. They'd adopted an orphanage in their hearts, and they brought up the, all the orphans who had become dear to them, and they presented them with clothes for the winter that they had hand-knit and said, we love you and we care for you. You see, when you go out and you start something new, it's going to reach places you could have never reached on your own. The second church that we went to um, in Irkutsk, I went for their 20-year anniversary a few years ago, and they had become a network of churches in the region of Irkutia. They were reaching and doing things amazing. I want to tell you one last thing. Another wonderful thing that happened out of the church in Irkutsk 
is that several years ago I went and we, once we had turned over to, to Russian leadership, which was 15 years ago now, I think. Once we turned it over to Russian leadership, then it really got going. They took on the, the drug problem in their city, which Irkutsk is one of the largest drug problems in uh, all of Russia. And they took on that drug problem by starting a drug rehab center in the middle of the forest. And I went out to this forest and I walked around their center where they had Bibles and they had, uh, they had uh, teaching tapes and they had all kinds of productive things for people to do. Anyway, the long and short of it is this. They would take drug addicts. They would house them. They would worship and pray to God in the morning. They'd lead them to Jesus. They, they would uh, live in community together. These people would come off drugs. And many of them became faith group leaders in the churches around. And guess what? As well. There were at least, and I remember face to face seeing the, or seeing the video face of the pastor that I'm a dear friend with say, we've seen at least 12 HIV people, people that have HIV, be completely healed in the last few years. That's what happens when you begin starting new works. When you become a base and say, we're going to stretch out with, for you, God, things happen that you would never, ever understand. Well, I want to tell you real quickly... In closing, kind of what we're doing a little bit around here to be a stronger home base for our own movement. We were planted, as I said, 16 years ago. A group of crazy Christians from Texas came up here and planted a church. But we didn't come here to just plant a church, but to be a movement. We, uh, oh yeah, okay, there we go. Uh, We brought, uh, in the last few years though, we realized that we've extended to seven or eight locations that we need a lot more organization and structure in order to see this multiplied out to a greater measure. And what we did was, in prayer, Sean Richmond and myself, we sought out and we invited uh, Mark Buckner and his wife and Charlie Halley and his wife to come here. Charlie works as executive pastor at the River Church, our sister church, and Mark here, with their gifts, and we said, come on, And bring your gift mix in here and help us to build so that we can not just be seven or seven or eight churches, but 70 or 80. So that people don't get harmed, but that people get helped by us in the midst of everything. And so here's just a real quick thing to tell you uh, that our home base uh, is we're defining our home base now more clearly for CFI, which is our missions movement, Community of Faith International. We're defining that home base as three churches, the CFCF, you're there today, if you didn't know. The River Church, which is in Waltham, which was planted out of here four years ago. And the Harbor, which is in Beverly, which was planted out of here about seven years ago. Or eight years ago, I can't remember, seven or eight. So these three churches are defined as the home base for our movement. We have other locations, but this is our home base. And I want to talk about three areas we're centralizing. The first is business operations. We're centralizing these business ops, uh, and we're going to have a central uh, location. And all that means is that the things that that churches um, in the hundreds uh, are unable to provide, that as we work together and coordinate our business office, our accounting, uh, all of our other business operations, we're able to do much more efficiently, much more effectively. And uh, so we're centralizing, and Charlie Halley is going to be in charge of that. We're also centralizing our movement's leadership development. And what that means is that we, uh, Mark Buckner is going to be working together with our college ministry to start with, 
with our uh, training schools and help to, to clarify and to bring uh, unity within every single thing that we do in our training. So when the River Church or the Harbor or wherever we are has a training school, we're all coordinated together. We know what we're doing. We're not just all marching up a different mountain, but we're working together in that. And Mark is working together with the college team. He's working together with our training school, with, with Phil and Leslie Masterson, who are responsible for our training school. And they are really centralizing and encouraging uh, uh, great growth and clarity there. The third thing is we're centralizing our three churches' focus in the area of Sunday messaging, guest assimilation, and local... Uh, I don't know what that is. Sorry. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, local pastoral oversight. Sorry about that. Uh, but anyway, the centralizing of these focus areas means that we're just going to streamline things. We're going to work together. Every sermon is not going to be the same at every church, but we're going to work together. We're going to have share uh, series. We're going to share uh, resources. We're going to share it at a greater level. Now, you might ask, what does that have to do with me? How does that affect me? Well, what you will notice is that you're not really going to have any effect on you initially. CFCF is still here. I'm the pastor. You're here on Sunday mornings. You will be in your faith groups. But what you will notice over time as this uh, rolls out slowly, steadily, but efficiently is more clarity in communication, more strength in every single thing that we do, and more power in ministry. Really, it's not going to affect you other than bless you. Uh, hopefully <laughs> it will bless you, but you will not notice a huge change in your life. But we as leaders are working together with our combined uh, giftings of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. We're working together in those giftings to see these churches and this movement become all it can be in God. That's what we're doing. And, um, I just wanted to encourage you that we love each other, that we are excited about this. I've been walking together with Sean Richmond for the last 25 years in some level. I've been walking with Mark Buckner at some level for over 25. Mark and Susan, I've known them for over 25 years. We are committed to one another, and we want to serve you. We're not saying any of this out of uh, uh, anything being wrong. What we're saying is we want it to be better. We want to be better at serving you, serving the Lord, and serving our communities for God's glory. Let's stand. We're going to have an opportunity here as the band comes forward to respond uh, to God's Word today. Mark, John are going to lead us in that. Just want us as the band plays just to worship the Lord, to open your heart to Jesus today. And give your heart to Him. Continue to give your heart to Him and, and uh, the team's going to lead us out in, in, a, in a response.